I can remember, as a child of the age of eight years, one night in particular where I wouldn't let my mother leave my bedroom. Let me put it in context for you. We were coming to the end of the Cold War, and I had heard a rumor, some playground story, that there was a huge bomb planted in the middle of the earth. And all it was going to take was for someone to push a button, probably a big red button, and it was going to blow the world to pieces, apart from the people who ever planted the bomb. Now, my mother, as good as she was, was trying to say, it'll be fine, just go to sleep, just go to sleep, don't worry about it. But of course, to an eight-year-old, things like this were far too important to leave before going to sleep. In my mind, our local MP needed to know so that he could take the appropriate action in government. Or indeed, the news people needed to know so that they could tell everybody about it. And I even remember saying, no, just tell the minister and it will all be sorted and fine. My mother gave me a look as only a mother can. A look that says, I love you, but stop this nonsense and go to sleep. And as she was leaving the room, as she was turning out the light, she said to me, the end of the world will come sometime. You don't have to fear about it. All you have to do is be right and ready with God for when it comes. I wonder, have you had similar fears, perhaps in your younger days, about the end of the world and the end times what it was going to look like, what it was going to be like. Or maybe over recent years as you've listened to people preaching and teaching about the end times, you've become a little bit more curious about it. Of all the works that we read in terms of Christianity in the last few decades, books about the end times have been prominent in the discussions and on the bookshelves of the shops that we go to. And I really don't want to panic anybody this morning, but the next date to put in your diary of when the world is going to end apparently is the 21st of December 2012, or so it says in quite a lot of websites out there. But our passage today, about these times, about end times, the things that are going to happen, I will not be giving you an exact date or time, or indeed things to watch out for. But instead, we'll be looking at what the teaching of Jesus says in its context and the lessons which we learn for living today. It is a prophetic passage. Jesus is being a prophet in the words that he says throughout this chapter of Matthew 24. And we're going to start with a little bit of comfort in Matthew 24, verse 36, that says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And I have to say, this gives us great confidence that the 21st of December 2012 may well be the possible date of the end of the world, but so is every other day that we will live until that moment which we will not know of when the world will end. The reason why Jesus starts talking about all of these things, the signs and the times of the end of the age, can be seen at the start of chapter 24. In verse 1, we read that Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple. 
The past two weeks, that's what we've been focused on. They've been in the temple. Jesus has been teaching and he has been rebuking the leaders. He's finally stamped his authority of who he is and the authority that he has to proclaim these things, that he is the Christ and his authority is from God, his Father. But they're leaving the temple. And it's all part of that one long day that we've been looking at over the past number of weeks. For the disciples, it's a treat to be in Jerusalem. Being in the temple, not just because of its significance as the place of worship, but as they look at the gold, as they look at the finely polished stone, this majestic building set at the heart of Jerusalem that the Jewish faith focused on. For them, this was fantastic. And as they're leaving, they look around and they marvel at this great, magnificent building. They're mainly from backwater villages. These are just common fishermen. The majority of them, others, work in different trades. And they are awed at God's house. And they share this with Jesus And Jesus, very quickly in verse 2, says to them, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. In other words, Jesus is saying there is a time coming when this temple, this place of beauty that you're looking at, will fall. It will be destroyed. And the gold and the finely polished stone will no longer be there. And this plays on the disciples' minds. They leave the city And they walk about a mile or so to the Mount of Olives in the east of the city. And so the disciples have time to think. And as they reach the Mount of Olives, Jesus takes up that position that a teacher would take. He sits down, and in verse 3, the disciples ask two questions. As we read them in our English translations today, it appears that there are three questions for us to look at. But if we were to look back into the original Greek language. It's actually two. The two questions are, when is it going to happen? And when is the sign of the coming to an end of the age? So when is it going to happen and what are the signs going to be? And in it, Jesus presents two offers, uh, two answers to these two questions. The answer to the first question, when is it going to happen, starts in verse 4 and goes through to verse 35. And the context to this question is the statement Jesus made while leaving the temple. So the disciples' question is, when is this event of the temple stones falling on each other going to happen? And can I stress now that it's important to see the answer to this question in this context. For many years we have rushed into the age of today without thinking about what it meant for the disciples as they heard it in response to the questions that they had asked about the incident that had happened in the temple. So to answer the question, Jesus presents the disciples with some prophecies. These prophecies they must be aware of. They need to know them so that they can be prepared for what is about to happen. And in Matthew 24, verse 5, we read the first. There will be false Christs claiming, I am the Christ. In Jesus' day, there were dozens of people who claimed to be the Christ, the Redeemer, the mouthpiece of God. Simon Magus knew this, as we learn in Acts 8. 
Another man called himself a prophet and promised to divide the Jordan. There was an Egyptian who came with 1,000 men and promised the walls of Jericho would fall at his command. All of this happened within 30 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, just as he said it would. In verse 6 we read, Wars and rumors of wars. And these wars and these rumors of wars were constant in Israel at the time. With much talk about rebellion against Rome, we have saw that in previous weeks and how the uh, Jewish people were looking for uh, a rebellion. They were looking for a Messiah who would come and wipe out Rome. So there were these rebellious conversations against Rome. Within the empire itself, it had to deal with wars in Egypt and elsewhere during that generation. Verse 7 tells us famines and earthquakes. There were these. The book of Acts describe a collection taken by Christians for famine relief in Jerusalem. And there are Roman historians who record earthquakes in Syria, Antioch, and Aegea. Moving on to verse 9, Jesus prophesies that there will be persecution. Certainly from Jesus' days to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, there was much persecution of Christians. And Jesus also prophesies that the love of many will go cold in verse 12. Josephus, the Jewish historian, describes the unspeakable brutality of Jew against Jew, even in the days when they were supposed to be fighting the Romans. And in his view, more Jews were killed by Jews than by Romans. Matthew twenty-four fourteen claims the gospel will be preached to the whole world. Another prophecy that Jesus tells in this passage and what's your initial response to that you may think but it hasn't or it wasn't how could it have been to the whole world so they only stayed around that little mediterranean area well in romans 1 verse 8 paul says the faith of the romans has been recorded all over the world colossians 1 verse 6 and verse 23 say the gospel has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven Was the gospel fully proclaimed and preached throughout the whole world or the whole earth? No. But was it preached to the entire world known by these people? Yes, it was. The gospel had gone out to the known world, that Roman world that was much smaller than the world we think of today. Was the world fully evangelized? No, it wasn't. Yet Jesus said that the gospel would be proclaimed And that happened in that generation. And this is where we start to see this reaching into the times to come. Because what we read here is a foreshadowing of what is to come. The final outcome. Because yes, there will come a day where the gospel will be preached to all nations before the end. Where every tribe and every tongue will come to hear of Jesus Christ. But for the people in this day... The message of Christ spread within the 30 years or so after his death and resurrection. And as we would read on in Matthew 24, especially verses 15 to 19, where it says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. 
how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. I suggest to you this morning that this, that this statement is about the fall of Jerusalem rather than the final end of the coming of Christ in his glory. Why do I say this? Well, there would be no point in Jesus saying, on the day of judgment, if you are on a rooftop when Christ come, do not go and get a cloak. That would be nonsense. Why would you hope you were not pregnant or nursing at this time? You cannot flee from Christ. So this has to refer to the fleeing from Jerusalem. And this teaching is one of the ways that Jesus uses to show that the church will be preserved, that it will be kept in order that it will not be destroyed by Rome. Everything that Jesus prophesies came true in AD 70 as Jerusalem was raised to the ground and the temple destroyed. But a foreshadowing of what is to come. We've left one prophecy out. Verse 29. The sun will be darkened in those days. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The Son of Man will appear and all the nations will mourn. Certainly a judgment day. But how many judgment days have there been? The prophets prophesied that Babylon would receive its judgment day. They prophesied that Egypt would face its judgment day. And they also prophesied that Israel would face its judgment day. The falls of Babylon and Egypt were, call them dress rehearsals of what was to come for Israel. The warnings that nations that did not follow God in the way that they were to follow would have the judgment of God upon them. And so the final judgment for Israel, as we knew biblical Israel, came in AD 70. Jesus is talking about end times. The end of what would be this religious rule of Judaism. But it is a foreshadowing of what is to happen at the end time when he will come again in judgment. The final judgment that will usher in the end of this world. So when we think of the first half of Matthew 24, we need to be careful not to rush and read these things as the signs of our times. They are a foreshadowing of what will happen when Christ will come again, the day and the hour of which we do not know. But let's move on to the second half of our passage in verses 36 to 51, which we read together. Jesus goes on to answer that no one will know when it is going to happen or what the signs will be for when it will happen. But what he does do is immediately launch into saying that it will be just like the days of Noah. Recorded in Genesis 6, we read that life was going on after the fall. People were having children. They were marrying and having more children and life was growing. The generations were increasing in number People were going around their daily lives oblivious to what was about to happen. And they saw Noah building the ark. How foolish. This great big boat in the middle of nowhere. 
What's it going to do? They knew all too well, as the door of the ark was shut and could not be opened, and as the rain started to fall and the tide started to rise. People were oblivious to what was going to happen. And that's how it's going to be. People around us won't realise that the kingdom of God is coming. That the Son of Man is returning. People will be going about their daily routines, working and mixing with people who are fellow believers and those of no faith at all. This is the world we live in. If you think of your circle of friends or the people you work with and those with whom you surround yourself each day, and if you were to take those little hypothetical tick lists that we as Christians do as to who's in and who's out or who we think is a Christian and who isn't, if we were to think of that and think of those around us who we would know would be in the kingdom of God and those who wouldn't, what is our sphere of influence? How do we interact with these people around us Christian and non-Christian alike, in the knowledge that we have that the kingdom is coming? Or are we letting people move around their normal lives completely oblivious that there is a time set in heaven for when Christ will return again? Verse 39 tells us, Sorry, verse 40. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other will be left. Signs that life will continue until that moment when Christ comes. Life will be as people know it to be. And from this, Jesus goes into two parables telling us about getting ready. The first one in verses 43 to 51. And the first one is simple. It's barely a parable. Jesus says that he will come like a thief in the night. When do you expect a thief to come? Well, you don't. Because they come at the most unexpected time. And the point is, that's when Jesus will come. It will be silent. There will be no great announcement of trumpets that you still have time to prepare before the king comes. He will come. And that is it. The second parable is a little bit more detail about how Christians are to respond to this coming. We do not know the time of when the master will come, but we must be at our duty. We are to take care of his household, do his work, be faithful so the master will be pleased whenever he comes. There is no way, as much as we try to plot and chart the prophecies of Daniel, Isaiah, and Revelation, there is no way that we can pinpoint the time or even a shadowing of the time of when Christ will come. It's all folly. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. The servants will not know when their master will come. The house owners will not know when the thief will break in. And so it will be with the coming of the Son of God. So what does it mean for us today? How are we to live in the light of this? The first question is the question that 
really my mother sparked in my mind those many years ago. Are you ready? Are you ready for that day that you cannot run from or hide from Jesus? And Jesus doesn't present this as a scare tactic. In other words, there's a cut-off date, folks, and if you're not in, you don't get the deal. It's not a scare tactic to frighten us. It's a, scare, it's a, it's a realistic picture of what will happen on that day when Jesus will come. To be ready for the coming of Jesus means that we are to have recognized him as Lord and Savior and asked for the forgiveness of our sins. And we have done everything we can to follow his example and life. A follower of Jesus, a disciple, a Christian. And this is something we cannot wait until a moment that is convenient to our diaries or personal lifestyles. In the parables told by Jesus, there is urgency of the unknown time. We do not know when Christ will break into this world and it will be over. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 stresses similar urgency when he talks about our transformations coming in the twinkling of an eye. We cannot wait. We must do our dealings with God today. And secondly, what do you think of the picture given in verses 40 to 41? Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. People doing what they do every day. Our neighbours, our friends, our colleagues. Those we see over the fence going about their day-to-day duties. Those we gather around the water cooler or the coffee pot with. What will it be like for them? Will you be the one who will be taken and another who has left? This highlights our need to keep to our calling, just as the second parable does about keeping our service for God or for the Master until he comes. The problem is the longer the delay in Christ's return, the more we slip into lifestyles that don't represent his ways. There's almost something grows within us and says, it's been so long now, well, it's hardly likely to happen within the next week or the next year or indeed within my lifetime. So I can get away with it and it'll all work out in the end. Those whom we see every day. In the biblical picture, it's those in the field and it's those grinding, going about what they did every single day because they had to. If you remember an airline called TWA in America that went bust around 1990, they had a policy that no two Christian pilots would fly together. In case the end of the world would come, one pilot would be taken, or well, both would be taken, and their policy was we'll have a non-Christian and a Christian, so that if one goes, the other will be left to fly the plane. In your Tesco shopping aisle, or in the fruit store across the way, in the places where you have coffee, the people around you each day at that moment when Christ will return, who will be taken and who will be left behind? 
And the question has to come with those who are left behind. Are they left behind because we did not do what we could in sharing our faith? In sharing our Christian life so that they will know the joy that we know or that we should know as we follow Christ? Will they be left behind because we did not take the opportunities of sharing the gospel no matter what the cost? Because that's what we think. All too often we think that we are not capable. Or we wonder what good will it do to that person who always always seemed to be so hard against things of faith. It's easy to remain quiet. It's easy to sit and say nothing so that we do not face whatever we think we may face. Who would listen to just one voice? Let me tell you about Telemachus. Telemachus was a little monk from North Africa. And in the 4th century, he followed the crowds to the Colosseum in Rome. Two gladiators were fighting. And Telemachus tried to get between them and to stop them. And we stress the little. He was a man of short stature against these two giants of gladiators. And he shouted out three times in the name of Christ, stop. Eventually, the 50,000 strong crowd and the gladiators stopped. But they stopped just for a moment. They had heard him shout, stop. But before he could say anything else, someone threw a stone. And Telemachus was stoned to death right there on the floor of the Colosseum. And when the crowd saw the little monk lying dead in a pool of blood, they fell silent, leaving the stadium one by one. And the emperor who had been in the Colosseum that day, watching everything going on, marveled at the spirit and the integrity and conviction of this little monk. And for the next three days, he was disturbed by what he saw. And on the third day, so three days after Telemachus went to his death for shouting, in the name of Christ, stop, the emperor decreed an end to Colosseum games. That was it. No more in the Colosseum would there be gladiatorial fighting. One small man, a follower of Jesus Christ, who didn't get to see the outworking of his conviction and the standing up for his faith in his lifetime. But three simple days after his blood ran through the floors of the Colosseum, There was no more blood to be spilled in gladiatorial sport. One lone man with a very small voice who got a crowd silenced for a few seconds but yet changed the shape of what the world would look like three days later. It is amazing what God can do through his people. If we will be but that voice. This was the voice of one man. Imagine a voice of believers in society that cried out against the injustices in the world. 
about the misuse of wealth, about the pain and suffering faced by many, about how the morals of our society are slipping and slipping. One voice, growing into many voices, can change the shape of the world. But it is only through the conviction that God gives us for the things that our hearts long to see changed. As you gather around your water coolers and coffee pots, your garden fences, your newspaper stands, and wherever else you meet people, one voice can change the world when it is the voice of God speaking through us. I hope that my fears of a bomb at the centre of the earth have gone. But if anybody knows any information, please let me know. But what about your fears? The end of the world, the end of the age, the end of time is coming. When a glorious trumpet will sound and Christ will come to take his own home and judge The words of Jesus tell us we must be ready. Be ready. Be ready for that moment. Don't waste your time looking for the day and the hour and the circumstances when Christ will come. Instead, go out there into his world and know him. Serve him and offer your life for him, whether it be in the place you currently know or the places that he will lead you to in the future. Be ready to give your all to him so that when his kingdom comes, he will know us and receive us into his glorious presence. Be ready. Let us pray. Father, muddled words and incoherent thoughts of a sermon can never take us away from the truth of what your words are. And your word tells us that a time is coming that we must be ready for. We must be ready in the spiritual sense of knowing you as our God through the sacrifice that has been paid by Jesus Christ. And we must be ready in our service for you, sharing the faith that we know and hold so dear. Father, I pray that we won't be frightened by the things of the end times. But we will look forward to them. For it is the completion of our hope, that hope that you will take us to be with yourself. Until then, help us. Help us to do what you need us to do as we share faith with those around us, as we live faith in our homes and in our places of work and in our community of fellowship. Lord, help us not to get lost in a date and a time, but to keep going 
and to be the voice, the voice that you will use to change this world. Speak to us, minister to us. And Father, make your words real to us so that we will take action as we desire that closer relationship with you. For Christ's sake, amen.